Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. I have some exciting news. I've finally created a website. It only took me 10 months. On a recent episode, a guest, after we finished recording, encouraged me to create a site that would host the different kind of projects, intellectual projects that I'm working on. And there are a few, I will admit, uh, on the site, which is, I will say at the beginning, still much in the process of being completed and perfected, you'll find the two podcasts that I host, this one uh, and another one that you may or may not know about called the History of California Podcast. You also find two other projects around reading. As many of you know, reading is the crux of my intellectual life. And the two projects I have on there are first, a monthly reading list that you can subscribe to. It's basically just an email that includes all the books that I've read and perused during the previous month. You'd get it at the end of each month. Uh, and the second is a classic books blog. I generally or consistently try to read one old book a month. 99% of the time the author is dead and it is on my bucket list to read. So I will post that at the beginning of the month and at the end with some reflections. If any of this sounds interesting to you, you can visit my website, which is helpfully named jordanmaddox.com, J-O-R-D-A-N-M-A-T-T-O-X.com. Now on to today's show. Today we have a special guest, Lee Herrick. Lee is the author of many books, and his poems have been featured in more magazines than I can count. By day, Lee teaches at Fresno City College and also teaches in the MFA program at Sierra Nevada College. I'm just going to prepare everyone who's listening to this. Uh, you're about to experience a very nerdy poetry talk. But, as always, we talk about other things, including food, hip-hop, and even the movie Parasite, which I was very excited to talk to Lee about. So, now, let's go meet Lee. And, of course, Baker will take us there. In the U.S., Fresno's best. Fresno's best. Okay. All right. Uh, Lee, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Well, uh, that's a good question. You know, we have a lot of favorites. Um, I like a lot of the food trucks. Uh, my favorite is probably Taco Barbecue. Um, we eat a lot at Imperial Garden just because we love dim sum. Um, and Don Pepe, I love. Uh, most any pho restaurant, you know, we go to pho 89 sometimes. Um, but you know, those are, those are the, the ones that I usually go to. Right. So by D also is a favorite. I, yes, to all the above. And, um, for maybe someone that's listening that hasn't had never had, I mean, it's, there are people out there that's never had dim sum. Can you explain what that is and what those little wonderful cushiony pillows have inside? <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it's, uh, you know, small bites. You, you could think of it kind of like small, almost tapas-like if you're familiar with that. But, you know, it's traditionally Chinese and it's um, kind of a breakfast or brunch um, meal service with tea. And, um, you know, some of the more popular 
dim sum items people like are hargao, which is like a steamed shrimp with a, a noodle wrap and um, sticky rice and banana leaf we love. Um, you know, there's all kinds of small uh, little plates. Um, uh, shumai is like a, a pork. Um, so, yeah, we love it. You know, we... Um, in San Francisco, we, we have a few favorite places and um, there are a few in Fresno. Um, and a lot of people will go on the weekend for, you know, the carts. It's where they push the food around and you can just order it right off the cart as soon as you sit down, which is kind of fun because you see the food, you know, going by you slowly and you're salivating. Kind of but, like a sushi boat. Like I, I used to go to yeah. this place in San Jose that had the, it was a full, I mean, they, they went all out. They had like, you know, like there was like a landscape scene that the boat would float through. So it wasn't just mm -hmm. like a boat in a river. It was yeah. a full experience. And I, 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 I love that as a, as an idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, that's a good word for it. it. It enhances the experience. And I think that's just what it is, but we'll go anytime during the week because they have dim sum on the menu without the carts as well. You know, let me, let me run this by you as someone that's eaten in big cities. I've heard this interpretation that the suburbs is actually the best place to get quote unquote ethnic food um, because uh, different migrant communities, uh, you know, once they've kind of moved out of the larger cities that they maybe initially arrived in tend to go to, you know, safer suburbs. Um, and so you find a lot of good quote unquote ethnic food in suburbs. Do you, what do you think mm -hmm. of that? I mean, because I, when I lived in San Francisco, I had some definitely had some places that I liked. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I mean, there's I, I, I at least in terms of Indian food, when I lived in San Francisco, I could not find good Indian food in the city. That, yeah. I mean, there was some I don't want to shit on the whole city, but there, there was good food there in Indian food. But like the stuff that I found here, I find to be better yeah. um, in the middle of, you know, the Central Valley. Yeah. You know, I don't know about the suburb argument or the, the suburb idea. It's, it's an interesting one. And I hadn't thought about that. Um, you know, I, some cities food is just some of the best I've had outside of that country. You know, for example, um, in Koreatown in Los Angeles, that's some of the best Korean food I've had other than the food I ate in Korea. Um, in San Francisco, uh, my wife would know better. She lived there for a while, but you know, a lot of people think about Chinatown, which we love and eat there quite a bit. But you know, she always talks. I think it's out of Richmond or something, where it's a little further out towards the water, where some of the best restaurants are. Um, but in in Fresno, and I think to the suburb point, I think it's not so much for me proximity to a city as much as uh, the relative. Um, population of the communities that are cooking the food, right? So, you know, Mexican food in Fresno or say, you know, Southeast Asian food, pho and noodle shops in Fresno are as good as anywhere I've been. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it, it, for me, it's a lot to do with um, are the people there that are making that food Koreans in Los Angeles, for example. Yeah. And I think partly too, like with the city part, you know, uh, you get a lot more innovation in food, you know, you get like the Roy Choi's of the world doing like really interesting things with like 
Mexican food and Korean food and these kind of fusions. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I talked in a previous episode about, you know, Fresno kind of has a trouble with like, uh, like concept food, you know, there's a lot of places that you can just get the, the breadth of things, but there's uh, not many places that like really go for a single concept. Mm-hmm. And I think those concepts tend to be those, uh, those places where you can have that interesting creativity and fusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to transition to talking about um, poetry because that's uh, a love that I have that I rarely get to talk about. Um, not that people don't read poetry, but I, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things that you got to find your kind of your crowd, right? And so I, I knew I've known who tended to know who the poet laureate of the United States is. That's been something that I know. Um, I and I tend to grab whatever their uh, you know, whatever their most recent collection is. And it's a good way for me to kind of like, uh, you know, keep up with the world in poetry. And I, you know, so, and then there's, there's sometimes where you'll, I know the poet laureate from a state like Natasha Trethaway, who's one of my favorites. Um, and like, you know, her kind of very distinct regional poetry of that kind of Mississippi Delta region is like something I know about. I didn't know that there were poet laureates of cities. So I guess for the audience, what, what is a poet laureate? Um, is it like, is it like being knighted kind of, and is, um, what, what do you, what do you, does it change your life in any way in terms of what you do? Or is it just kind of like a, a designation that says this person speaks for us? Hmm. Well, your knowledge of poets laureate, I, I think is, probably better than most and and that could be that you're um you know involved and active and aware or it could just be that poetry as a genre isn't one that the mainstream is often really immersed in um but you know basically a, a poet laureate is a poet who is appointed by a town or a city or a state or a country or in some cases even a county um, and that appointment sort of varies based on the location. Uh, some, some places allow self-nominations. Most, you have to be nominated. Um, but absolutely, uh, cities and towns have them. Although Fresno, being as much of a poetry city as it is, didn't have one until 2013, I believe, was the first year. Um, but yeah, there, I don't know when the first California Poet Laureate was, but um, Fresno's, I think, one of the only cities, if not the only city, that has had two United States Poets Laureate from one city, um, Philip Levine and Juan Felipe Herrera. So, um, you know, it's, it's appointed and then it's usually um, officially designated by the mayor or the governor. Uh, nationally, it's through the Library of Congress, and uh, you know it can be a one or two year appointment. And the duties really run the gamut. You know, sometimes people are asked to write a poem on a certain occasion. Usually, a poet laureate takes on a project to enhance the visibility or the profile of poetry in the community somehow. Um, And, you know, does it, so I was appointed in 2015. I was Fresno Poet Laureate from 2015 to 2017. And it was an incredible honor 
there were, and, and there are so many incredible poets in this city. It's, I think of it kind of like, you know, Austin or Seattle or some, or, or Nashville, these music towns that are just known for their musicians. I think Fresno is like that with its poets. But when I was appointed, it was a great honor and a real thrill. It, it didn't really change my life, but it, a lot of people will say it increases your opportunities and your platform to elevate poetry, right? So whereas I could normally do certain things, having the city, having the mayor, having that laureateship uh, behind me, it allowed me to do different things that I might not have otherwise been invited to or, or I wouldn't have tried. I mean, I read, in, I read in prisons, I read at Valley State Prison, and, which was incredibly uh, rewarding. Uh, and I, I co-founded Lit Hop, a literary festival. So um, yeah, poet, the, the laureateship is really a wonderful thing and I'm glad Fresno did it. I, I should mention that this had a lot to do with Lilia Chavez and the Fresno Arts Council helping to get that together. Wow. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like it's a unique opportunity. So what, so you used it to kind of sounds like further, like a, the literary community in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that's something I think about a lot, you know, and then this is kind of part of why I do what I do as well, which is, you know, I, for for Fresno having as many poets as we do, you know, we're also a city that struggles with literacy too, and so it's it's uh it's kind of like um it's it's complex in that you know yeah we seem to have a lot of strength but also we have a lot of weakness yeah um, yeah so I want to talk about uh, seeds of the silent tree um, and what the purpose of that project was um, and then what you gained from it uh, personally. Um, so maybe you can just explain what that is and uh, talk a little bit about it. Sure. Um, so Seeds from a Silent Tree was a, an anthology of writing by Korean adoptees. And so it was a book that was published in 1997. And I, I didn't help to publish that or I didn't edit that book. I did contribute a poem to it. And so I was one of the the contributors, but um, that book in in my mind and in, in, in some communities is considered to be a little bit groundbreaking just because it was the first of its kind. You know, I, at that time I was 27 and just starting to write seriously. And I had published a few times here and there in small literary magazines, but I'd never had any work published in an anthology. And I had especially never heard of an anthology focused on Korean adoptees. I mean, at that time, I was really just coming into my own sense of identity as an adopted person anyway, much less uh, discovering that there was this book going to be made. So, um, you know, it was a, a pretty pivotal point in my life and in my writing life, just finding I think the main thing was finding community in the way that was most me. In other words, you know, we're, we're both Californians. Uh, we both teach. We both are interested in, in literature or film. 
but you know, you keep going down. I'm Asian American. I'm Korean, Korean American. I'm a Korean American adoptee. It was really uh, an early game changer for me. And so, um, yeah, I was, it was a pretty, pretty meaningful uh, experience having a poem published in that anthology. Yeah, I, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, the way these different things connect us. And I keep bringing this show up. It's, it's you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just a food show, but it, it, uh, it had a similar kind of effect on me. It's uh, Taste of a Nation by uh, Padma Lakshmi. It's on Hulu. And it's basically mm. she goes around to different kind of immigrant communities and looks at their food and shows mm. how that connects them. And the one that like that really stuck with me was the episode about Las Vegas um, and she looks at the Thai community there uh, that, you know, married GIs during the Vietnam War and then came over and developed this kind of, through food, this like really tight knit culture. Mm. Um, and it, it, you know, it, make, it makes sense, you know, that that, that was a pivotal moment for you. And um, it's, just, mm. it's just so interesting. Uh, you know, I, I, I feel like in the common discourse, you know, I, I, I don't exactly know where I'm going with this, but what I'm trying to say, I think, is that um, these connector points might uh, might seem not superficial, but like like food, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they have a way of getting into something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, food is is a great entry point. I mean, Bourdain talks about the first time he had uh, that French soup as a young person and, and realized it was a cold soup and he realized that that would be part of his life forever. Um, and, you know, food, especially for immigrant or refugee communities where, you know, you're coming from or your family is coming from some other country to find that food here in the United States, you know, unless it's one of the, you know, say Italian or, something that's fairly ubiquitous is a pretty exciting moment. And, you know, it's the same way I think when a person reads that first book, you know, uh, we all read those great books growing up, Dr. Seuss and, and all those, those amazing books. And then you, you know, your identity unfolds and you're discovering who you are. But that first time you read something that, is is more you or the new you if you will it's it's really um transformative and meaningful i think at least it was for me especially as a writer thinking does anybody even care or would anybody even read anything by an asian american poet much less a korean adoptee poet so it it was it was an exciting time and that kind of naturally leads us to talking about the Adoption Museum Project. And museums are an interesting institution. Um, it seems like they're both um, central to who we are, but also quite on the periphery of this kind of like very kind of snobby, literate part of society. Um, but it seems like the project that you were working on uh, was not really geared towards that part of society. And so it was kind of a reinvention of the museum. Can you talk a little bit about what that project was and why you got involved? Yeah, so I was involved with the Adoption Museum Project and 
that was a project founded by an amazing visionary woman, a friend of mine named Laura Callan, who's from the Bay Area. And she assembled a group of people with the idea to raise visibility of all aspects of adoption and to address justice in adoption through the vehicle of museums. And so I was part of the working team for a while, and then I was on the advisory board. And uh, we, we took an indefinite hiatus about a year ago. And I hope that, that the work returns at some point. Um, but the website Adoption Museum Project is still up. And over the seven or eight years, we did over 20 events. and. Um, it, it was a, a great experience and yeah, you know, museums were, were the vehicle that Laura wanted to pursue. And I think it was a great idea. I do hope that someday there might be an adoption museum, like there is say a civil rights museum or a Holocaust museum or the number of other amazing museums um, in, in and around the country. So what? So you talked about uh, you know bringing justice to adoption. So uh, you know, uh, for someone that's not familiar, what what are the what are the issues that it's concerned with? Like what yeah. um, you know, for a layperson, you know, yeah. talking about justice and adoption, that those those yeah. are kind of common connecting words for a lot of people. So can yeah, or what that means. Yeah, I appreciate you asking. You know, uh, and I forget sometimes that adoption isn't that known just because it's been my experience and I'm so familiar with it. But I think a lot of people maybe have a friend who was adopted or uh, learns about it. And I say learns with, you know, quotes through some Hollywood film or something. But, you know, the common narrative is that a person is lucky, their life is wonderful and um, things like that. And, and that is sometimes or, many times the case, but it's also bound in loss and trauma um, for the adopted person. And so with justice, I mean, I can think of one example that relates to my community, the Korean adoption community. Um, people my age who were adopted uh, had to go through a naturalization process. So um, now, say if a person's adopted from another country, they go to the embassy in that country and they're a U.S. citizen upon entering U.S. airspace, right? So it's all taken care of. But people my age uh, had to be naturalized. So where justice comes in is in, in some cases, the adoptive parents, for whatever reason, forgot a form or didn't fill something out correctly. And the person you know, say was adopted from Korea in 1972. They've worked here in the U.S. their whole life. They've voted, they've driven, and then maybe they get a misdemeanor or they go in for some insurance purposes at a hospital and they find out that they actually aren't a citizen. And in some cases, Jordan, this is where it gets really unsettling and disturbing. There are cases where people have actually been deported back to the country they were adopted from. And in my mind, it's heartbreaking and despicable. And there's legislation going through Congress right now. It's a bipartisan bill to try to get 
that retroactive citizenship for adoptees. But that's one example that we were looking at. Uh, there are many, you know, access to birth records and medical records and, and things like that. Um, you know, but there, there are a lot of um, good people doing some good work and, and um, the Adoption Museum project, I think, was a part of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think another thing that comes to my mind, and, you know, this doesn't necessarily have to be related to justice, uh, but it probably is, is when, you know, when you have, uh, you know, different ethnic groups adopting uh, a different ethnic group and lacking the knowledge and the background from not being part of that group, but also, um, you know, kind of not creating opportunities for their child to experience their kind of birthright culture in some ways. Right. Yeah. And that, that seems like a, that seems like, it seems like a justice issue, but it also seems very complicated and mm -hmm. knowing what the right thing in that situation to do is probably hard to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there are some who, who think that uh, it should not be say transracial adoption. Um, I, I, I don't know if I go there, but I do think that it has to go far beyond the savior idea where a person thinks they're doing a good deed or, uh, you know, I, when I do adoption talks, I hear adoptive parents say, well, I never saw my child upset or they never said anything. And therefore they thought the child might not have um, concerns or, or problems with regard to race. Um, so it is a pretty complicated issue. And, and I think at a base level, I think colorblindness um, is a problem in including in the adoption community. Yeah. And that, that probably, you know, happens to people on all sides of the aisle, you know, well-intentioned yeah. people that, you know, kind of stumble into, you know, raising, a multi-ethnic family and then you know maybe the things that they don't see because they're not going to school with their children or you know some of those some of those questions or like you know if the student or the kid experiences something at school and they don't feel like they can maybe talk to their parents about it because they don't have that common attribute yeah so, i mean it seems like there's the the you know the issues are you know there's so mm -hmm. many issues that we can yeah but, yeah, and there, luckily, you know, with the museum or other books, or there's so many great films now made by the adopted people of color, or whatever it might be, you know, there's also uh, a lot of great organizations for birth mothers or, or first mothers, uh, women who have placed children for adoption. So it really is um, a full range of experiences to, to respect and honor. So I, um, I want to make a slight pivot to talk about um, poetry in higher, you know, higher institutions and poetry education. Um, and I, you know, there's, there's a whole discourse that we could probably go through and talk about related to, you know, literary education, right? But it feels like poetry is even deeper in that kind of like conversation in terms of like, the the disconnect and difficulty um, with uh, teaching in today's kind of, you know, I mean, in our culture that's become increasingly, you know, visual, if you will, 
Um, and I, so I guess my question is, what, what do you see as kind of the state of poetry education in higher ed? Uh, so maybe, you know, at, at, the, at the level that you're teaching at. I mean, I know there's MFA programs where people are, uh, you know, there's great work being done and there's a lot of people really interested. Um, and, but then there's also, you know, there's, the, there's those students um, that are in their first English class and maybe they're given a poem to read. Um, and... <laughs> You know, there's it's it does it doesn't feel like we deal with poetry in the same way that we deal with the novel, uh, with other forms of literary education. Uh, so I guess what are what are uh, how do you approach teaching poetry, and um, what are and I'm really curious about this. What are some misconceptions that students bring in to a poetry classroom? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I I think like you said, at, at the MFA program level, um, you know, those are flourishing. And not to say they don't face budget woes and, and political things like any department at any university or college, but there are a lot of MFA programs now in the United States. But at, at my level, if you're wondering where I teach at Fresno City College, you know, a lot of the students come in I'd say the majority of the students come in having read, as would be expected, what they got previously. And often that, I think, by necessity, is canonical, right? right. Um, so, you know, and, and that's a good thing. I don't think you have to be exposed to everything by age 15. But, you know, so if they get, say, Shakespeare or Whitman, and I know a lot of high school and middle school teachers who bring in uh, amazing local or national contemporary poets. Um, and so I think some of it depends on the teacher and, and his or her um, or, or their own interest and uh, desire to teach poetry, right? Mm -hmm. um, but by the time they come to, say, City College, a lot of them are creative in some form or another. They maybe write song lyrics or they've written stories or they write poems or plays. Um, misperceptions about the poetry. I, you know, I think sometimes uh, a beginning poet might think that it all has to rhyme, for example, or that it has to be about an elevated, lofty subject like grace or forgiveness or love and of course those themes run through a lot of poetry but a lot of them are surprised when it can be about you know their grandmother's um you know mexican food or you know um anything that is specific to their lives and i think that's when it starts to open up for them a bit uh but we've you know we we've got some great student poets at City College, and um, I wish we could teach more of it. You know, poetry is one of those subjects sometimes that isn't as um, exciting for some administrators, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but it's vital, just like any art, music, film, dance, you name it, poetry is, is essential. 
Okay, so I'm going to read you a poem. It's not something that I wrote, but it's a, it's a poem that I think captures at least my initial difficulty in reading poetry. Um, and it's by, it's by another poet laureate. You probably, of course, know Billy Collins. Um, and it's his po- poem, uh, Introduction to Poetry. Have you, have you read this poem? Are you familiar? It's been a while, but I'm very familiar with Collins. Okay, now. so uh, the poem reads, I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem, waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose and find out to find out what it really means. And so this was, this was my initial difficulty in reading poetry. Um, I approached it kind of, you know, I, I don't know if you understand this reference, but like uh, as a religious studies person, as my background, uh, kind of Gnostically, like I was looking for secret knowledge in the poem and that I had to discover its meaning in order to get value from a poem. And as I've gotten older, uh, you know, for me, poetry is, is a lot more than that. Actually, you know, the meaning sometimes uh, matters less than the experience of reading it. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that, uh, about, you know, your experience and um, how people, as they get older, read poetry differently? Because mm-hmm. I imagine you have a lot of students coming into your classroom saying, you know, okay, well, what does it mean? What yeah. does it mean? What's it about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a good question, and and you're reminding me when when Collins was U.S. poet laureate, uh, he edited an anthology, and it was kind of his project, if you will, to uh, introduce poetry more into the high schools. I just was and, reading that poem from my copy of that book, yeah, uh, Poetry right. One Eighty. Yes, exactly. One Eighty, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, this idea that what does it mean? What does it mean? You know, there could be a lot of reasons for that. I think part of it could be the emphasis in uh, certain grades about testing, which needs an answer, right? Um, And usually there's just one. You know, it could be two, but choose the best of these options. So if you take that thinking into something that is nuanced and um, in some cases, subjective, like art, it's, it's going to be problematic. I mean, we can think, yes, this could mean that, or this reference could mean this. But I think one of the great things about poetry, or any art, really, is not just so much the science of it and the linear you know, this plus this equals that in a poem. But just how does it make us feel? What, what's the visceral thing that you can't name after reading it? You know, why do you think of your dead uncle or your sister you haven't spoken to in six years? You know, wherever those things go for a reader, I think there's value in that. It's like I wouldn't begrudge a student who listened to a song Let's say they listen to Let It Be, and they say something, and they can support it with some kind of reasonable logic. I think there's value in that. And that's one of the great things about art. So if we reduce it to a 
yes, it means that, that is limiting what poetry can be for a student in my mind. Yeah, um, I, I, have, I have a lot of responses to what you're saying. One of them is I remember um, when I first went to New York City and I went to uh, the Museum of Modern Art there and I was 17 and I was wandering and I wandered right in front of like the biggest Jackson Pollock I'd ever seen. And I remember standing in front of it, staring at it, just kind of like having my moment. Um, and then this guy, you know, probably some NYU grad student with, you know, a pointy beard walks up behind me uh, with, with a couple of women that he was probably trying to seduce and began to explain to them what the, the painting meant. Um, and I was listening to him and I was like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Because it, it, I mean, sure, you might know something about him, you know, and his place in life or whatever, but this looks like an experience to me. And I, you know, my, my background, my graduate education was in religion. And one of the interesting things that's make, you know, it's kind of a transition point in how people read the Bible, which is what I studied, um, is this kind of idea that uh, for a long time, people have taken the Bible to mean, you know, you got to find the meaning by the history or whatever. Um, and there's these really interesting scholars that are saying, no, it's not really about that. It's how you change after reading the story, right? And mm -hmm. I, I resonate with that a lot, um, which is, you know, that mm -hmm. to find the meaning, um, you know, it, 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 it doesn't, if you're finding the meaning, it doesn't, you're not allowing it to change you. And I think it's true with poetry yeah. too. You're not allowing it to have an impact on you if, if it is a treasure map and you are seeking that treasure. You know, right. So that's that's exactly kind of where my brain went. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, that's a great example of it. And sure, someone could know something about Pollock's life, but I think you're right. It just sort of stunts the possibilities if an art is limited to what's the answer. You know, and another angle of it, I think, is with the teacher or the professor and how challenging it is just on a pragmatic level to manage the time and to know how to safely bring out those curiosities from a student who might not normally feel safe or comfortable doing it in some classes, right? And so there are a lot of different things at play, I think. And, but ultimately, I mean, that's one of the great things about the museum is that they aren't being tested on it. There isn't a time limit per se. So they can really spend longer on one painting or looking at one sculpture, but classes are just so driven and we've got to finish this that sometimes it doesn't allow for it. I mean, it's one of the reasons I'm always encouraging students to read or, or experience or do things beyond what even their best teachers can offer because even what they can offer is still just a small slice of the amazing things that are out there. Absolutely. I, I remember probably my best experience was I had this, I went to San Francisco State for my undergraduate education, and I had this professor who I'll never forget, his name was George Leonard. Um, and he was kind of like half in the humanities and Asian studies department. And he, uh, one of the things that he did was he took us, he took us to uh, the MoMA in San Francisco and had us sit in front of this famous uh, three-paneled white painting. I'm forgetting the name of the, he's like one of those Mark Rothko period people. Um, and um, yeah, it's just three white panels. 
And the assignment was to sit there and look at it for half an hour. <laughs> so, you know, uh, there's, and then we had to write a paper on it. And I remember, you know, it, it, it was probably the best paper I've ever written in, in my undergraduate education because, you know, I, there was nothing there to work from. I mean, it, I mean, there was something there, but it was like, how is this act, yeah. you know, what is it bringing out? And so it was kind of a work of psychoanalysis, but in, in any case, yeah, I, I think those experiences outside the classroom or where you give students kind of freedom to, you know, make it about them. And I, I definitely am not the educator that thinks students already have everything inside of them. We just have to peel it back like an orange. Um, right. I, I think there are some skills ne needed in, in reading poetry. You know, one of them definitely. is, you know, into your, your vocabulary base and what you're working with. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, uh, anyway, I, I, I want to make the, we could talk about poetry forever. Uh, but I want to make the jump to uh, talking about film. Um, so I, I remember when I watched Parasite for the first time, um, I was by myself. My wife was out of town somewhere. Um, and I, you know, I had an enormous glass of wine. And it was just like, I felt like I just walked away traumatized, you know, like totally traumatized. And in a good way, you know, the way that you feel traumatized after, you know, any good like well thought out, uh, you know, kind of, uh, not a, not a, I'm trying to think of that, uh, that, uh, the name of the filmmaker that made the movie where the two boys show up and, you know, it's kind of, and they hold this family hostage and they keep breaking the, you know, the third wall and talking to anyway, mm. I just have these experiences of these movies that kind of shook me and parasite shook mm. me. Um, and I did not, after I watched that, I didn't expect it to win an Academy Award because it's such a startlingly non like a you know like non traditional like uh movie for Hollywood to highlight um but it is probably the best movie that came out that year so can you just talk a little bit about uh your watching of Parasite what you got out of it and then Maybe shed some light. I know we just talked about meaning and not wanting to think, you know, but maybe shed some light on some things that you took from the movie that mm -hmm. maybe I didn't. Mm -hmm. Well, Jordan, you know, these questions, we, I think you and I both could go for a long time on these. I, I just love, um, you know, these are some of my favorite things, film and, and art. You know, what? <laughs> I, first, I heard about Parasite. There was a great buzz about that film um, well before it, it really started to hit the theaters in the United States. Um, I know that at, uh, it won the ju top jury prize. It was the unanimous prize winner at the Cannes Film Festival. And so there was this buzz about it. So uh, my wife and daughter and I were in San Francisco and we saw it there first in uh, Japantown. And I was just stunned. We, we've seen it probably three or four times since. And we bought the DVD. So if that tells you <laughs> anything about how much I love this movie. Yes. Um, but it was stunning. I mean, you know, I'd never seen anything like it in Korean films or American films. And that's one thing. I mean, I think. I think so many times we kind of know it'll be different, but it's still a variation on a theme, right? Like the Irishman. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a variation on a theme. Um, so 
you know, I, I remember the first time I saw Star Wars, even though I was a, a young boy, I <laughs> still hadn't and still to this day probably not seen anything like that. But as far as um, just some of the layered subtleties of Parasite I loved, literally and figuratively, the layers, right? Like they live in this basement and uh, they get a job in this mansion and then there's a basement in the mansion and then they emerge back out into the luscious, spacious yard. And, you know, they there's that opening scene where the this drunk person sort of starts urinating and, and he seems to be even a lower class or the same class and they're, you know, telling him to get lost and, you know, they're, they're getting free Wi-Fi from the neighbors. So all these things about Korean uh, social class, I think, were really prominent. You know, Korea, I've been there a few times and what I, what I know of it is maybe like other places, certainly the United States, is that it, it's sharply divided by class. I mean, there's extreme wealth in South Korea. I mean, we're talking about Samsung and LG and some, some major uh, entertainment um, going on there. And there's also some, some real poverty. And so I just loved it. I, I loved, I mean, you could look at it as a parody. You could look at it as a drama. Um, you know, just some really memorable scenes, I think, you know, just iconic scenes of um, whether it's violence or uh, just anything else going on in that movie. I just, I just loved it, you know, and, and what you said, you didn't think it could win. I, there's a lot that goes into that. I thought it was definitely going to be nominated for foreign language feature, um, which until burning, you know, a couple of years before, I don't think there had been one from Korea, but when it was nominated for feature, I was ecstatic. And when it won, I was just twice as ecstatic. First foreign language feature film to ever win best feature in the 92 year history of those awards. I'm sort of an Oscars junkie i i love watching those all the time and you know looking at the history of those films so it was extremely exciting so so exciting and um it was a great film and i it was widely uh pretty widely received that way which was interesting too yeah and it it didn't it fortunately didn't have the same experience that moonlight had <laughs> at the oscars oh, if you remember that right um yeah, yeah i you know it seems like it seems like the academy is 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 opening up you know i mean and you don't you know you don't have films like lord of the rings return of the king winning you know anymore i think they're seeing that yeah. you know that's really not you know it's not the best in film it's it's just you know it's the the most money spent in film or whatever and yeah. i you know i i think what was what was interesting for me after watching it was kind of you know, it was it was kind of learning more right and like the one thing that i learned about was the the when they're coming home um, after they've been partying in the house and the wife calls to have have the have the mother make the food um and then it's like a was like a it was like a kind of a cheap noodle dish but with like very expensive meat <laughs> and kind of like yeah. what, what that says yeah. like what that means like so there's i that i love parasite 
as an experience, but yeah. I also loved how many things, like you said, layers, right, are underneath. Like each piece was kind of configured like like a puzzle uh, around this kind of you know these like little tiny motifs that would just float through. Mm-hmm. And I just love that as you know as because it because you're right it makes it it makes it rewatchable you know in a way where you see something yeah. different every time. And I've yeah. only watched it a couple I mean, times, but. Anyway, you know, even even that scene at night where the son is sleeping outside, there's even layers there. You know, the couple are on the couch and then just a foot below them is the the family who got the jobs there under that table. So there's so many elements of, of physical and figurative layers and layering. You know, I I think that the Academy is getting better and this is certainly an indication of that but i'm still really wary you know after crazy rich asians i'm wary you know i remember all american girl in 1983 margaret Cho's tv show that was 30 years later until we had fresh off the boat so i i don't i don't think i'm a pessimist but i try to be measured in my excitement when it comes to social change in such uh, really a not diverse um, field. I mean, there've only, there's never been a black director win best, uh, black director win best director, for example. Yeah. There's only been one woman. So, but Parasite is definitely a step in the right direction. Just a great, great film. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of American history, right? Uh, one step forward, 14 steps back. You know, so pro- we'll probably have like yeah. 12 years of La La Land winning again before we get another, <laughs> another uh, non-traditional yeah. film, quote unquote. Um, so I, I'm going to yeah. kind of switch my question around in order uh, with you because I, um, I want to talk about hip hop now. Um, so, you know, one of the, you know, poetry, poetry is, you know, I mean, we talked about it being kind of, you know, a niche thing in some ways, but in other ways with hip hop, like today, poetry is front and center. Um, and, you know, we all have, you know, we all have our, you know, the lyrical masters that we look to in hip hop. And, you know, I, I, as my kind of my hip hop journey, you know, in college and learning and living with people that were making hip hop and producing beats. And, um, you know, I, I, the, the, you know, the Wu-Tang Clan for me is like that moment, like when I really understood what it was. And, you know, I, I, I still know at least three quarters of the song Triumph. Um, and that opening line when, uh, when he says, I bomb atomically, you know, it just, it just, it just, it, it's a poetry that kind of gets in your blood, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, it's partly, you know, the, the music attached or whatever, and the kind of the flow and the, the, the vigor in which you receive it, you know, cause oftentimes we don't, aside from slam poetry, which I'm skeptical of, um, we don't really, you know, have poetry performed for us. Um, and so hip hop is kind of that, that experience. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about uh, your hip hop interests, yeah. maybe some, uh, some music that you like and uh, talk about how it's different than what you do, if at all. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I've, I've told this story before to a couple people. Um, I was in a math class, and this was 1985 or 86, and uh, the kid behind me named Jeremy, you know, he was that kid in high school who always knew the good music first, mm-hmm. you know? And this was back in the days of, of mixtapes. 
and we're sitting in math class and he nudges me and I'm trying to not get in trouble from the teacher. And, you know, he nudges me again and he's sliding a mixtape between my arm and my, my chest, you know, and, and I kind of covered up with my arm and, and I looked down into my lap and he had written on the little label of the mixtape, uh, run DMC. <laughs> and I'd never heard of it. Right. And honestly, I thought it was a punk band because, you know, a lot of those punk groups, DRI, TSOL, I always thought of, and I listened to a lot of that were acronyms. So mm -hmm. I thought he was just giving me another punk band, yeah. but I took it home and listened to it. And it was just nothing like anything I'd heard before. Um, and I think that was one of the earliest um, things that made me start thinking about writing poetry. Like you say, there's such a natural uh, connection between rap or hip hop lyricism and, or maybe other songs too, and poetry. Um, you know, I, my favorite albums, my, my favorite groups and my favorite albums were probably pretty concentrated in a time period. I, I don't, I stopped listening to a lot of it after the early nineties. So, um, this will probably date me, but you know, like Tupac and Biggie and even Wu-Tang Clan, who I know are all essential. I just don't know that much of their catalog, but I will say probably my favorites are it takes a nation of millions to hold us back by public enemy. And um, I loved the low end theory or low end mm -hmm. theory from a tribe called quest. But probably my favorite is Paul's boutique from the beastie boys, um, which was 1989 and probably still know every lyric to that album. Um, <laughs> they were my first concert too in 1987, I think the beastie boys and fishbone. But um, yeah, I loved it. You know, the energy, uh, the sort of unabashed willingness uh, to be unique was interesting to me. Um, some disregard for, for customary music norms, you know. They weren't worried about radio airplay and a three-minute song. Uh, they would cuss. They would... Um, you know, it just felt a lot more real to me. And certainly Public Enemy spoke to the, the political racial justice stuff that was starting to brew in me too. But, but those are some of the ones I loved. Yeah, I, um, I was just thinking about it because you said low end theory. And for me, low end theory has that association. But there's also, uh, when I lived down south, there's uh, in Highland Park, there is a, 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 like a, a, a event that celebrates like beat culture. So like oh. hip hop beats uh, that's called low in theory and it oh. happened like every Tuesday. Uh, and that's where I, for the first time saw flying Lotus, who is kind of like, you know, a little bit of uh, my generation's, uh, hmm. you know, public enemy or what, not in the same way. I mean, there's, uh -huh. you know, but, but uh, kind of like creative expansiveness um, that, you know, some of those early groups had. Mm -hmm. So how do you, how so do you, did you go ahead. Oh, I was, so you did some producing or did you make some? No, music? no. So my story is that I had a random roommate happen 
you know, for the longest time, you know, when I was younger, kind of like you, you know, like I was into punk rock music and indie music and, you know, I'd, you know, roll up to school listening to Bell and Sebastian like any good uh, hipster. Uh, but when my senior year of college, I um, moved in with these guys that were producing um, and at first I hated them because they would produce their hours of operation were like 1am to 4am, which is uh, the time in which I sleep because I was a student. Uh, <laughs> and, but they, you know, it was, it was an education. Uh, and I, you know, I, I came in with no knowledge and I left feeling kind of like an expert in many ways. Um, and we would have these events yeah. at the house in our basement in South San Francisco where people would come from around the area to spin and to rap um, and to mm. dance or whatever. And we would barbecue and it became this thing. And I, you know, I, that was, that was when I saw hip hop as a culture and not just as music. And that was, yeah. that was a big like conversion moment for me uh, because yeah. I'd always saw it as uh, you know, as just music that you listen to. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's actually, you know, so much more than that. And, you know, there's been great documentaries about this. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I'm not saying it as best as, you know, uh, you'd watch the documentaries, you know, History of Hip Hop, if you really oh, want to it's great. This. There's so many good ones. There really it's is. Great. Is that the one where they have, uh, they focus on, say, Atlanta and then, you know, South Los Angeles, the East Coast? Yeah. So there's, yeah, there, I'm thinking of that right. one. And then there's another one that really focuses on the Bronx and New York mm -hmm. and kind of those early movements. So, but how do you, how do you see your work like in conversation with kind of hip hop or are you guys in kind of parallel channels, you know, moving mm -hmm. in the same direction, but different rivers, if you will, or is it, or is it just kind of different shades of the same brush? Um, I, I definitely don't think it's the same river, so to speak. I mean, you know, I mean, as, as a genre, right, there, there are some obvious differences. Um, a song is going to have typically a verse chorus and a verse um, poems typically don't, or there may be different forms of poetry. But as far as what I'm doing, I think if there's anything that I borrow from hip hop, it's uh, repetition. Uh, the poetry term is anaphora, but the repetition or repeating of a phrase at different places in a poem is something that I like to do. So for example, I have a poem called My California, and that's a poem where I, I can feel that, just that uh, um, experience or love for that kind of music sort of through that poem. But I think a lot of poets do it and they may not have that love or that um, music on the, on their mind when they write. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if there's anything specific where a person could point to it. I don't, I don't see it directly related. Although uh, I think of myself more as a lyric poet. So there's that maybe where I don't think uh, I'm writing narrative poetry per se. Um, also, I'm very interested in sound in my poems. And rap, yes, but I love music of, of a lot of different kinds and have seen many, many, many bands live. And so music is something that's very important to me and, and probably makes its way to my poetry just because I'm interested in the musicality of a poem, the sound, 
I mean, even down to, you know, I think about how words sound and what they convey, you know, a softer word that opens up at the end, like pillow and, and or different uh, ways to create velocity or pace in a poem. You know, those are all some poetry techniques that, um, that probably also appear in rap, but I'm definitely not thinking about writing lyrics to a song when I'm writing poetry. But, but if sense. anything, it's sound, I guess, that I'm interested in. Yeah. I want to end by talking about um, writers in the area, but also writers generally that you're interested in. You know, I, I have two things to say about this. One, if I have to hear William Saroyan one more time, I'm going to lose my freaking mind because I, you know, I love William Saroyan. I mean, I, you know, he, I, let's see, I've got a book, I think, uh, just on my bookshelf somewhere. Let me see. It's right over here, I think. Yes, I have it. Here we go. William Saroyan, Fresno Stories. So I've got, yes. I've got, I've got my William Saroyan on. It's, it's there. Yes. But if he is the only thing only writer that we can talk about in Fresno were up a Creek because I, you know, there's, there's gotta be other experiences. In that. Yeah. But I will say this, given what's going on in Armenia right now, William leading William Saroyan is probably an important thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but for this moment, I just want to move beyond him. So that's my first thing. And my second thing is, you know, I, I try to, I try to keep up with poetry you know, nationally or globally. And it's, it's challenging in some ways. I have my different sources, whether it be Lit Hub, I read the New York Times every day. That's kind of, you know, their book review is great, you know, for giving me ideas. And then I, you know, Tracy K. Smith has this great uh, daily podcast called mm -hmm. The Slowdown. Uh, the Slowdown. Yes. Yeah. And that's, I always, you know, it's, it's like, I, like I do that while I'm, my coffee's grinding, you know? Yeah. So it's like a, it's like a, a wake up ritual. That's, that's really great. But also I can discover, you know, po new poets and people that I hadn't heard of before because she's really good at like curating. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I'm curious what you're reading and poets that I maybe haven't heard of. So maybe if you'd share some write, I mean, Fresno wise, it doesn't necessarily have to be poets, just writers you like. Mm -hmm. But then if you'd talk about some poets that are working you know, beyond Fresno that, that we should be reading. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. So, um, you know, I know you know this and, and a lot of the listeners might, but, you know, Fresno poetry lore goes way back and it's really um, significant. I mean, whenever I'm in any city around the country reading, inevitably somebody's going to ask me, what's it like being a poet? in Fresno or did you know this person? So, you know, a lot of that started with um, the late great Philip Levine and Peter Everwine, um, Larry Levis, I love. Um, but, you know, the, the poets right now, uh, you know, our current laureate Marisol Baca is wonderful. I'm really excited about Anthony Cody's first book, which uh, was just, I think today, made the, the short list for the National Book Award. His, his first book is called Borderland Apocrypha. Um, you know, of course, Juan Felipe Herrera has um, been very important for me as a, as a poet. Um, a lot of newer ones, you know, Anthony, um, if, you know, Meider Vang's work is amazing, Bryn Saito, these are all poets. 
Stephen Sanchez is a poet whose work I love. And there are a lot who are considered Fresno poets because they were from here or they went to school here and they still, uh, it still factors into their work. You know, are people like Joseph Rios and Sarah Borjas who are down in Los Angeles now. Um, David Campos is a poet here in Fresno whose work I love. Um, so those are some, I mean, I, you know, there's the essayist Stephen Church, um, memoirist and essayist whose work I really love. Connie Hales. I mean, there are so many. I, I could probably go on for a long time, but th those are some that I think of. Um, outside of Fresno, I mean, you know, Patricia Smith, who, who I teach with at Sierra Nevada University in the MFA program. She's from uh, the East Coast, but I love her work. Brian Turner, um, Carolyn Forche. I'm loving Tina Chang's new book, Hybrida. From, she's from uh, New York. Um, so many. I mean, yeah, the list can go on forever. And it's, it's it, you know, it, it almost becomes, I have this problem. I mean, there's a lot of people I have my problem, um, which is I buy more books than I read, which I, I actually don't. I mean, my therapist, my old therapist, we would talk about this quite a bit. Um, I, you know, I made, I made very sure that when I got a therapist that he was old Jewish and would shame me during therapy sessions. That was kind of a prerequisite for me. I just needed some good shaming. Um, but I would just, I would come, to, I would just, you know, talk about uh, endless piles of books and be like, what's the problem? What's the problem? You just always have something to read. Uh -huh. And I, you know, that's my right. thing is I always have something to read. Uh, but the, you know, if, if I turned my computer around and you saw my desk, well, I'll, you know, who knows? I'll just, I'll just show you. It's, it's a, it's, it's terrible. There's stacks of books everywhere nonstop you know it's 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 uh one of those <laughs> i hope i didn't lose hey, my, my microphone, i think but. i think that's that's all right jordan i think it's good to have books around <laughs> you know i yeah but uh but the but for me it's a lot of fun um what i have the most fun doing is discovering new poets and i think that is uh an activity that we should all support is like going on those poetry treasure hunts to find interesting writers um and so where, where do you, where do you, I mean, is it just word of mouth? Where do you go to find new poetry? Uh, that's a good question. Um, let's see. So, you know, the Academy of American Poets, I think is, you know, a really good resource. Uh, there's a website called From the Fish House, which is an audio archive and it also has text but it has audio of a lot of emerging poets. So poets with one book out or two books. So some of those might be newer. If, like if you know Tracy K. Smith's work and some of the more well-known um, laureate types, you know, From the Fish House is, is a good one. Um, uh, you know, the Poetry Foundation has some really good links to where if you just typed in, you know, uh, Latinx poets, it'll come up with a huge list, uh, and they have other groupings as well, but that's on the poetry foundation. And then, you know, each link has a photo and sample poems. So, so those are a few, I mean, there's also some really good poetry podcasts specifically. Um, but, but those are a few that I, that I think of. 
Yeah, my recommendation to people is um, to, to, to find one literary magazine that you just want to become the devoted supporter, you know, because there's all of these like tiny, tiny little art house magazines that, you know, are always teetering you know, on the edge, right? Yeah. And, uh, and they, these, are, these are the conduits for which we find our new people of letters, right? Yeah. And I, you know, by just buying whatever their $10 a month, whatever their, you know, and their, their monthly subscription, or it's a, a lot of them are just quarterly. So, you know, you're just paying for something. So like I have like a wine quarterly subscription, uh, but I need more poetry subscriptions as well to, to complement that wine subscription that I get every mm. quarter. Um, mm. And so that's my recommendation is find like, you know, find a, find a lit magazine that you just want to be a patron of, you know, yeah. um, because those are the places that, uh, you know, that those young poets are, that's because they're not publishing anthologies. You know, those young poets, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're submitting their poems to a hundred different lit magazines, hoping one of them will say yes. Um, and so I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's my suggestion. And also my, my own personal way of finding, finding new, interesting uh, voices. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm glad. I think that needs to be said more. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, literary magazines in many ways are sort of the lifeblood of it all. Mm -hmm. Um, good Absolutely. to support those. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been fun. Thank you for having me, Jordan. All right. Thanks for listening, folks, and go read some poetry. Until next time. <laughs>